The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here today. Those of you watching live, thanks for joining us. It's just good to be together with the people of God. You know, just just to be together, just to sing His praise, to look at His Word together. And this morning, we're going to continue in our study of 1 John. We ended our last study with uh, verse 4 of chapter 5 that says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, according to this verse, who is it that overcomes the world? Who overcomes the world? Everyone who has been born of God. How do we know who's been born of God? They believe. All right, that they believe. That's how we know. All believers, this verse is saying, are overcomers. Twice in verse 4 and once in verse 5, believers are identified as those who have overcome the world. We're overcomers. This is a descriptive term. But let's put this in context here. When John says our faith is conquering the conquering power that conquers the world, He's referring to believers' faith in Yeshua. They have put their trust in Yeshua, who during His earthly life and ministry conquered the world. And that's what He says in John 16.33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in Me you may have peace. In the world you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And here the Lord uses nikau, the Greek word nikau, of Himself as a conqueror. He's a victor. This is where we get our word Nike. He used the verb form when he says, I've overcome the world. Yeshua conquered the world by His sacrificial death on the cross, by His resurrection, and by His return to the Father. And this is why we are conquerors. It is believers who are in union with Christ. In our union with Christ, we are and have all He is and has. In verse 5, he says, Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Yeshua is the Christ. Now, this is phrased as a question. Who is it that overcomes the world? Well, it's a rhetorical question, because he just told us that. John affirms that it's the person who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God who has conquered the world. And John has used the verb nikau, translated overcome, to describe the believer's victory over the secessionists. Now, if you remember... I know we were out of John for a while, First John for a while. But he is combating a group of people who are secessionists, who are teaching error in the church, and he is trying to straighten this out. So he says in chapter 4, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Now John seems to have in mind here a victory over the opponents who now belong to the world and speak the language of the world. In the midst of the opponent's attempts through their false teaching to confuse the readers, he is telling you, you're overcomers. Their false doctrine is not going to hurt you because you know the truth. You are in the truth. You are overcomers. You overcame them. So specifically, he's dealing with this false teaching that is going on. Now he says in the end of the verse, it's Yeshua, the Son of God. Now, in verse 4, there of chapter 5, he says, everyone who has been born of God. And then in the end of chapter 5, he says, Yeshua is the Son of God. Whoever believes that. And everyone who believes that, we already looked at this, has been born of God. Chapter 5, verse 1. That's why you believe, because God has given you new life. That's the only reason anybody believes. They've been given new life. Now, he says, Yeshua is the Son of God. This clearly defines the content of our faith which is mentioned in verse 4. Our victory is our confession of trust in Yeshua, who is both fully man and fully God. Christology, that's the center of our faith. Who is Christ? What has He done for us? And let me say here that this initial victory, which places us in Christ eternally, does not guarantee subsequent victory in Christian living. Did you catch that? We're overcomers, 
We are victorious in Christ. We will never be separated from God. In that sense, we are overcomers. But I see John's point here as being that victory achieved by the new birth makes obedience to God's commands achievable. Remember he said in verse 3, and they're not burdensome, right? But here's what I want you to understand. Continuing to overcome in Christian living is not automatic for Christians. It doesn't mean when he says we're overcomers, we're going to win every battle, we're going to be victorious in holiness in the Christian life. Not all Christians continue to overcome as they walk through this world. 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. He loved the world more than his love for God, so he deserted them. Only those who continue to live by faith overcome in this life. Now, we've talked about this a lot of times, but you have to understand the, dis- the difference between your position and your practice. In your position, you're perfect, you're holy, you're as righteous as Christ. In your practice, you're to be what you are in position, but it doesn't always come out that way, does it? In this sense, John refers to overcomers here, that they've overcome this false doctrine there in Christ. Every Christian overcomes essentially because he or she believes that Yeshua is the Christ. But if you want to continue to overcome, if you want to be victorious in your daily Christian living, you have to live by faith. Look what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's his position. And then he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Just as a Christian life begins at the moment of saving faith in Christ, so also that life is to be lived by faith in him day to day. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5-7, we walk by faith. Every day, it's a faith walk. Trusting God. And the more we learn to do that, the greater life becomes, the better it becomes, the more enjoyable it becomes. Because a lot of things are going to happen in your life you're not going to like. God's teaching you. He's training you. But we are to trust Him. Alright, so He talks about overcomers. Then in verse 6-8 through of 1 John 5, it deals with the Christological content of that faith. What is our faith about? What is our, who is our faith in? The, he talks about the faith that enables believers to conquer the world. Let's look at these verses together. 1 John 5, 6-8. He says, This is He who came by water and blood, Yeshua the Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. Now, in these verses, John comes back to his, this objective witness that he really opened the letter with. If you remember, you can remember back the first three verses, right? He talks about the things we have seen with our eyes, we have touched with our hands, we have handled the word of life. That's an objective witness. We, he was here with us. He's going back to that now, and he wants us to have a sure foundation for our faith. Authentic Christian faith rests on God's testimony to the person of Yeshua. Now, speaking of verses 6 through 8, Martin Lloyd Jones says this. Now, there can be no question at all but that these three verses are not only the most difficult verses in this epistle, but I think they are the three most difficult verses, in a sense, in the entire Bible. I think that's a little strong, but you get the point. He's saying, ah, oh, these are difficult verses. We're not really sure what he's saying here. It's kind of, you know, confusing. I don't think it's that confusing, but we'll see if we can figure it out. All right. He says, this is he. Now, what does the pronoun this refer to here? Well, he just stated, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes Yeshua is the Son of God? So the pronoun this refers to the Son of God, Yeshua, who is the Son of God. And he says, he came. And came here is the aorist participle, which emphasizes the incarnation. This is he who came. He's talking about God becoming a man. And he says, by water and blood. Now, here's where the interpretive problems start, okay? What does John mean by his reference to water and blood? And you can understand there's differences of opinions here, right? Lots and lots of them, okay? I'm going to share with you the top four, all right? Because there's all kinds of interpretations here. I'm just going to briefly go through some of these 
and then we'll get to the one I think is the real one. Well, view one says, uh, well, these are not in any particular order, just one of the views says, they understand water and blood as a symbolic reference to the sacraments of baptism and communion. That's just dumb. Okay? I mean, you know, that's all I can say about that view. It's just dumb. This was Luther's view. All right? But it really doesn't make any sense. You know? Oh, you came by the Lord's Supper. Yeah. I, I, what? What is that? What is he saying? All right. Another approach is that of John Calvin. Calvin viewed the terms as referring to the Old Testament rites of purification and blood sacrifice. Okay, which Jesus Christ fulfilled in his earthly ministry. That makes a little more sense to me. C.H. Spurgeon held that same view as Calvin, and Spurgeon says this, By the terms water and blood, we understand the purifying and the pardoning effects of Christ's work for his people. So that's definitely better than the first one, but still doesn't satisfy, all right? The third view, this view says that by water and blood refers to the death of Yeshua. And the only other Johannian passage where blood and water are mentioned together is in John 19.34. He says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. All right, this is speaking of the crucifixion. He was on the crucifixion, they put the spear in, and out came blood and water. Well, it's reversed, you know, but anyway, they're saying this talks about his death. Now, in John 19.34, the water that flowed from Yeshua's side here symbolically represented the outpouring of the Spirit. If you go to John 7.39, he talks about the water represents the Spirit. Now, Augustine and some other ancient commentators, they held this view. Both texts, the one in John 19 and the one in our text, they both emphasize water and blood, and they both emphasize the idea of testimony. So, you know, people are connecting these things like that. R. Brown gives apparent strength to this view by pointing this out. He says, Two comings do not fit 5-6-A, where the single preposition dia covers two anarthrous nouns, so that came by water and blood should mean one complete action. So he's saying that had separate references to Yeshua's baptism and death been intended, it would have been clearer to repeat the preposition before each of the nouns. That's true, but doesn't mean he's not using two separate things here. And I think I can prove that he's not using, he's not using one here. He's talking about two separate events. All right, let's look at the fourth view, which in my understanding is the most satisfactory interpretation. It takes the water as a reference to Yeshua's baptism. At the onset of his earthly ministry, he was baptized, all right? And the blood is a reference to the cross, okay? This was Tertullian's view. And its strength is that, in the context, John is emphasizing the historical foundation of the faith. That's what he's talking about. All right. So both his baptism and the cross are historic experiences that bear witness to Yeshua's divine human person. At each of these events, the Father intervened in a miraculous way to bear testimony to His Son. All right? He came by water in the baptism by John the Baptist at the River Jordan. And by that act, which has been the significance of prophecy, Isaiah prophesied that the Holy Spirit would come upon Messiah. And here we see at the baptism that happening. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, both the Hebrew and the Greek words for Messiah mean anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. He's the Messiah. That's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. He's the anointed one. Peter describes Yeshua like this. How God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth. The man. The man of Nazareth was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This happened at Christ's baptism. And John tells us in 132, and John bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. All right? Now, Matthew tells us this. In Matthew 3.17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now here's what we need to understand here. The Father's statement here about His Son is a coronation formula. 
All right, this, this goes back, and I cannot say this enough, but if you do not know the Tanakh, if you don't know the first three quarters of the Bible, you're going to get lost in the New Testament. Okay? All the language, all the concepts, they come from the first three quarters. Most people don't, don't even read those things, okay? I mean, there's stories, and they're like, what? No, read it. You know, it is, and, and I know it's, it's not something you grasp overnight, okay? But I'll tell you, the more you read through the Bible, complete Bible, over and over and over, you'll start seeing things. You go, oh, John said that. Oh, you know, you're picking things up. You're catching on. But it takes time. But we've got to do that. This is a coronation formula, he said. This is my beloved son. This is a reference to the second psalm. And the statement there is repeatedly, specifically to the messianic ministry of the one who would be the Son of God. Let's go to Psalm 2, 7 and 8. He says, I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So he says in Matthew, this is my beloved son, coming from Psalm 2, you are my son. And he says he's ultimately going to overcome, he's ultimately going to inherit the nations. Now the last clause in the Father's statement here, with whom I am well pleased, that's derived from Isaiah chapter 42. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So he says, I'm well pleased with him. And then in Isaiah, which it comes from, he says, in whom my soul delights. Now here the prophet Isaiah begins a treatment of the work of the suffering servant of Yahweh and what he would do. Speaking of Messiah's ministry. So the statement from heaven, this is my beloved Son, and the Messianic Sovereign Lord of the earth, and He says, in whom I'm well pleased, it speaks of His work of Messiah that will climax in Isaiah 53 in His atoning death. This is the Father's way of saying at the baptism, this is the Son who is the King of the earth. Now, again, we got to go back, Okay. Because the Israelite kings, when they made him a king, it was a three-step process. They didn't just come up and say, okay, you're king. Boom. No. They, were, they had, first of all, an anointing. You were anointed as king. Then after you were anointed as king, you had to go out and prove yourself. You had to win some battle. You had to do some victory. You had to you know, conquer something. Okay? And then you had the coronation ceremony. Now you're king. All right? You remember David. David was anointed king. What did he do after that? He went and killed Goliath, right? Okay, he proved himself in the death of Goliath. Then he had his coronation and he was king. So that this is, you know, the Lord is at his baptism. And see, Christ is the king and Christ follows this same pattern. Christ was anointed at his baptism. God said, this is my beloved son. Spirit comes upon him. He's anointed. What happens next? Goes into the desert, tempted of the devil. He conquers the devil. Okay, this is his victory. When is Christ's coronation? What? The cross. That's His coronation. Victory. That doesn't sound like victory, does it? Yeah, that's a huge victory. Okay? That's a huge victory. And we're glad that that happened. Okay? But this, so He's anointed there at His baptism. And He's going to perform the work of the messianic suffering servant of Yahweh. The Father is saying, this is the Son. He's going to do the messianic work. So it was at the baptism that Yeshua was inaugurated as Messiah and He begins His ministry, which will be the atonement for the sins of the world. Now John himself has written concerning this in John 1. Let's look at this passage here. He says, The next day he saw Yeshua coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think the people were excited to hear that? No, they were not. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Okay, but you think that would be exciting. But he said, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Wait a minute, how's that? John's six months older than Yeshua. So how's he get before him? Well, you know what's going on there, right? He's talking about his eternality. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might reveal, be, be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have borne witness, this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist is saying, this is my testimony about Yeshua. And it doesn't come from what I learned about Him naturally. It comes from what God told me about Yeshua. So Christ was anointed of God at His baptism. He came by water. And this is why I don't like that third view that the blood and the water just signify the death. That's one, that's one thing they're focusing on. But I think that this is focusing on the baptism. And then he says he came by blood. And I think this is focusing on the death. This is Calvary. John had just stated in chapter 4, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he talked about the death of Christ. He died for us. He came by water and He came by blood. Now, let me elaborate a little bit on that. Yeshua referred to His death on Calvary's cross as a baptism in blood. In Luke chapter 12, He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, He's not talking about water here, okay? And how great is my distress until it's accomplished. So He's talking about going to the cross here. So you put that together with what John has said. He says, He didn't come just by water, but water and blood. This is plain that when John means is, first of all, historically, this is the one who came through John's baptism. And through the baptism in blood on Calvary's cross. He came as Messiah. He came inaugurated into this ministry. Then He completed the atoning part of it in the death on the cross. So that expression, He came by water and blood, marks two great stages in the Messianic ministry of the Lord. And I think... That's why I said that third view that just focusing on his death miss his anointing. If he's going to be king, he's got to be anointed first of all. all right. Then he's got to win a victory, then the coronation. Now the Jews of Yeshua's day, including the disciples, could not conceive of a Messiah who would suffer and die. That wasn't what they wanted, people. All right. Even though they knew Isaiah 53... They knew Psalm 22, the death psalm, along with the entire sacrificial system, clearly predicted this. They missed it. They didn't want it. Now earlier, we looked at John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not what they wanted to hear. They knew what this meant. They understood the sacrificial system. He's a lamb, he's going to be slaughtered, he's going to die. They wanted to hear, Behold your King! Behold the triumphant One! Behold the majestic one, behold the exalted one, the ruler, the victor over Rome. They wanted one who would kill their enemies, and John was presenting one who would be killed by their enemies. They didn't like that. That's not how, they didn't figure this out too well. They just just didn't like this. So this is not something they're excited about. Messiah dying? No, Messiah is to be a conqueror. So when John says, This is He who came by water and blood. He means He has come through the baptism at the River Jordan where He was anointed King, Messiah. And through the baptism is blood on the cross of Calvary, which is coronation ceremony. And there He accomplished a propitiatory offering for sinners. And then John says this. Well, first of all, let's back up a little. He says, Yeshua the Christ. That's who He is. Yeshua the man is the anointed one. And that's the anointing, the baptism. Then he says, not by water only, but water and blood. What? What's he mean, not by water only? See, he's separating them. Again, that third view, doesn't they put them together. What John is stressing here is that Yeshua did not come by water only. He came by water and blood. Yeshua the man was the Christ before and at his baptism. But the man that died was also the Christ of God, the Son of God. In other words, he's telling us Yeshua that was born in Bethlehem was the Yeshua that was baptized at the Jordan. And the same Yeshua died at Golgotha and shed His blood for us as an atonement. Now, this interpretation fits with the context and the historical setting of the letter. And that's what we have to keep in mind. He's combating a group of people who are teaching heresy here. Remember the heresy that John is writing against? He's writing against, uh, there was a man called Serenthus, 
and later the Docetics, and later the Gnostics. You know, they didn't have Gnostics at that time, but they came from Sorrentus. It was developed later. So what he is saying here is he's saying that Yeshua was not just born as the Son of God. He was originally the Son of God at His birth. And then at His baptism, He was anointed. And see, they didn't, they didn't think that. They believed that before He went to Calvary, they believed that at the baptism, Christ, Christ was just a man. And at His baptism, the Spirit came upon Him. Now He's the Messiah. Now He's anointed to work for God. But before He died, the Spirit of Christ left him. So he died as a man. Now that should trouble you. <laughs> the Spirit ascended off him, so he just dies as a man. Just an ordinary man. John's opponents could not acknowledge the significance of his death on the cross because they denied any salvific significance to Yeshua's earthly life and ministry. So John, in his polemic against his opponents, says, not by water only, but water and blood. He was Christ. At his baptism, he was Christ at his death. Now John, as well as the other writers of Scripture, like Paul and the other ones, they all had to deal with heresy. They all had to deal with false doctrine at the time. And we get this throughout all the different letters. He's dealing with apostasy. We see this in chapter 4 in the third verse. He says this, Every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. Confess there is a Greek word, homologeo. Homologeo means to say the same as another. Everybody who doesn't say the same thing about Christ that God does, they're not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, he says. What you heard was coming and now is, it's in the world already. They're Antichrist. They deny who he was. He, they had to deal with apostasy. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain they weren't of us. These false teachers had come out from a group of apostles. They were with the apostolic teachers, and so they came out from this group, so they had credibility. They came from this group, because, and he's saying, no, no, they were never of us. If they would have been, if they had believed what we believe, they would still be there. Okay. Now, Serenthus and the Gnostics who followed his particular approach believed that Yeshua was simply a man. At his baptism, the divine Christ came upon him, carried out his ministry and the power of the divine Christ up to the time of his crucifixion. Shortly before the crucifixion, the divine Christ departed from him and he died simply as a man. In fact, someone on to say he died as a man who was a sinner just like other men. Is that a problem? Why? Why couldn't Christ be a sinner? Well, he'd have to die for his own sin then, right? He couldn't help us out. He'd be dying for his own sin and... That doesn't do any good for us. But the false teachers couldn't conceive of how a divine Savior could die on the cross. God can't die. This can't be possible. But we have to understand that this is true. We don't have atonement. Because if He's only a man, then that doesn't work. And all the other doctrines of the Christian faith are largely not true at all either. Consequently, what He did has been emptied of all value if that was a man on the cross. Now those were the views that John had con- had to contend with. He's battling these people. You say, well, I'm glad we don't have to deal with that stuff, right? Okay, things are not different in the 21st century, okay? A lot of these old heresies, these old doctrinal deviations are still there. There's a group of people today, they claim to be the witnesses of God. Alright? They call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, let's, let me start at the beginning here. First of all, Jehovah's not a biblical term, Okay? Jehovah is a word has no meaning at all in Hebrew. Okay? The word Jehovah was never heard of before A.D. 1518. Because there was no J's. Okay? It was added. So it's just a bad translation that got captured and then used. This is one thing I have against Young's literal. Okay? Young's living. (laughs) I know. I know I'm going to call it Young's Living, I guess because of the oil. I don't know why I do that, but <laughs> Young's literal translation. He, they use Jehovah, and that's not, a bad, that's not a good translation. God's name is Yahweh, not Jehovah. All right, so to call yourself Jehovah's Witnesses, you're starting out in the wrong place anyway. It's not biblical. But the JWs, they claim to be propagating the truth that God wants revealed. We're, we're His witnesses. They claim to be echoing the witness of God. But the truth that God once revealed, the true witness of Yahweh, 
is that Yeshua the Christ is the Son of God, God incarnate, and they deny this. The so-called witnesses are liars, all right? Because they deny the very thing which God gives witness to, which He's giving witness to in the text we're looking at at John. He's trying to say, this is the Christ, the Son of God. The JW say that Yeshua may be called a God, little a. Little a, little g. All right, a God, but not the God. Okay? They say He is mighty, but He's not almighty. They say that He was created by Yahweh. Alright, so he's a creation. He's not a member of the Trinity, and they don't believe in the Trinity. Okay? They say that the son during his pre-human state was really an angel by the name of Michael. Alright? They further say that the son did not even possess immortality. He was created and created to die. They teach that when Christ was born of Mary, he ceased to be a spirit person and became nothing more than a human being. The Yeshua that walked on the earth had only one nature, and that was the nature of a man. He was a perfect man, they say. They say the equivalent of Adam before the fall. The JWs also teach that Yeshua became or took on the role of Messiah when he was baptized. It's just a Serenthius teaching. Same thing, okay? It was there that God made this human being his spiritual son. And John writes, Who is a liar? But the one who denies Yeshua is the Christ, the Anointed One. This is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So anybody who denies the Christ, he says, is a liar. That's strong language. We don't like to even hear that, you know. But this is biblical language, okay? And if God says it, I think it's okay, you know. He's Antichrist. So if someone comes along, it might be a well-meaning Jew, because Jews deny Christ. It might be a JW. It might be some morally acting Mormon who denies the deity of Yeshua, who denies Christ of Scripture. The Bible says they are antichrist. Listen, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Does that describe a Jew? They think they have the Father. But if you don't have the Son, once the Son came, things change. You either believe in the Son, or you are not a child of God anymore. Now, the the denial of modern man is essentially the same as the Serinthian Gnostics. It's not much has changed at all. So when we read in, uh, in, the, about, in 1 John about the heresy and about the apostasy, don't think it's something that's passed and we don't have to deal with it anymore. It's still here today. And we hear these arguments all the time. we got people in the chat room all the time trying to you know, push this kind of garbage. And no, it's, this isn't, we deny this, okay? He says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Now, he's, he's adding the Holy Spirit here as an additional witness along with the other two, the water and the blood. And the Greek word for testifies here is from the Greek word martoreo, which appears in some form ten times in the six, verses 6 through 11. So, understanding this is a key. This is the word we get our word testimony from, witness from, martyr from. It could be used in a legal matter. Someone who gets pulled into court and they got to stand before the judge and say, yes, I saw this, I saw that. It can't just be someone who's sharing something with you. Yeah, I, was, I witnessed that. I'm telling you about what I saw. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're witnesses, right? We're supposed to tell people what Christ has done for us. Now, a good illustration of the Jewish usage is in Isaiah 43. He says, you are my witnesses. And that's where the JWs get this from. They're a little confused. But look who declares it. Yahweh, not Jehovah. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. So here Yahweh is saying that as creator to Jacob or Israel, he's saying, you're my witnesses. See, Israel was to declare the truth about Yahweh to the nations. They're to be a light to the nations. Now, they failed miserably. And in our text, the Holy Spirit is witnessing to Yeshua's identity. The Spirit's testimony about Yeshua, identity at His baptism was true because the Spirit Himself, He says, is truth. He's even God Himself, the third person of the Trinity. Now, within the functioning of the Trinity, it's always the Spirit's work to reveal. That's why we read so clearly in Scripture that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
Second Peter says this, chapter 1, 21. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke being moved, being directed by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, this wasn't what's called mechanical dictation. Like the guy went into a trance and his hand just started moving all over and he's like, whoa, look what I wrote. No. God used their life, their education, their personality, everything, and He inspired them to write this stuff that was inspired by Him. They were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And whenever there is a revelation of the will of God, whenever there is a witness of God in His revelation, it's from the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 1.15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the Scripture has been fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. So the Scripture, he says, is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit spoke this. By the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Yeshua. So the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold. Peter understood that all Scripture was revealed by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And many other passages talk about this same great reality. The Spirit has to teach He has to open eyes so people can see. In Hebrews 3.7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice. So the writer of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit says, and then you have a list of four verses quoting passages out of the Tanakh. He says, all inspired by, all revealed by the Holy Spirit. All the Bible is the Holy Spirit speaking. He is the revealer. So the Holy Spirit, John uses here, is the third witness. Now, in the tradition of the Jews... How many witnesses did you have to have to confirm something is true? Two or three. Okay. Not one. Okay. This is a great verse, Deuteronomy 19. If we could abide by this, I think we'd be much further ahead. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. That just makes sense. Just don't believe one person. Well, you always got someone who doesn't like you, right? Hopefully, hopefully you don't have two, all right? <laughs> he says, only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall charge be established. And Yeshua talked about this, you know, in Matthew 18. He says, listen, if your brother sins about, against you, you go to him and you talk to him. If your brother won't listen, you get another brother and you two go. Two witnesses. And if they won't, take it to the church. In a disciplined situation, you've got to have these three people. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he said this, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he said, nobody should bring an accusation against an elder or a pastor. Those are synonymous. They mean the same thing. In the church, unless it's confirmed by several people. Don't just believe one disgruntled person. Make sure there's a couple witnesses there. Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13.1, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, he says. All right? So no one can bring an accusation against someone without having several witnesses there. This is a protection thing. This is God's pattern for affirming testimony in the mouth of more than just one person. And here God does the same thing in John's testimony. He says, for there are three that testify. Now we're talking about Yeshua being the Christ. We're talking about the historicity of Christ in his ministry, and he says there's three that testify, the Spirit, the blood, and the, the, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree. Now, again, that's why I didn't like the third one, because it lumps water and blood as one. And he says, no, there's three. There's three. Now, anybody use the King James Version? You still use the King James? <laughs> Come out, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I don't think too many people use it anymore, but listen, there's some people who will die over the King James Version, okay? That's the only version. If you use any other version, you're an apostate, you're, you're off the charts, all right? There's a textual, textual problem here in these verses that we have to address. The Texas Receptus of 1 John 5, 7-8 contains additional words which are absent from the oldest and the best manuscripts. Alright, the King James, King James Version, the New King James Version reads like this. 
There are three that bear record. That's the text. And then they add this. In heaven. So you've got three witnesses. They're saying in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Well, there we have the Trinity. And these three are one. Okay, that makes sense, right? And there are three that bear witness in earth. And then he says the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Sounds good, right? But these words are, they're not there, okay? These words are known as the comma Johannem, which is Latin for the Johannian sentence. It's certain that the phrase beginning with in heaven in 5.7 and ending in earth in 5.8 are not part of John's original letter and should be omitted. Now, it's not often that you find New Testament scholars agreeing on much of anything, okay? But the majority agree here that these verses are not found in the original text and they shouldn't be in there. Okay, now this is where King James people go crazy. Oh, you're taking the Trinity out of the Bible. No, we're not, okay? We're just taking these verses out, okay? Because <laughs> they don't belong there. And this, this people is called textual criticism. We've talked about this before. It's the discipline where scholars evaluate both external and internal evidence and try to determine which reading is the original. I mean, they want to know what, and I mean, these, this is a laborious task, people. They're pouring through these manuscripts. External evidence refers to the weighing the various manuscripts in light of their age, how widespread is their distribution, and what type they represent. Internal evidence refers to evaluating the probabilities that what a scribe might have done, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to result in the various readings. Now, both internal and external evidence have to be compared and you have to evaluate. All right, what, what does this say here? All right, here's the thing that I, I think that most people don't understand. We do not have any original manuscripts. Do you understand that? None. The, the writings of the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, we have no zero zip, zero zilch manuscripts from them. <coughs> They're not in a museum. You're not going to find a photograph of them. They don't exist, all right? Now, even though we don't have original manuscripts, no longer in existence, there are many handwritten copies, thousands of handwritten copies that have been passed down through the centuries, multiplied over and over and over again. We have more manuscripts for the New Testament than any other document. And, and here's the thing that you find when you compare these things. There's very little difference between most of them. Okay, And we know where the differences are. And that's what textual criticism brings out. Okay, this is a, in question here or there. Now, through years of multiple duplication by hand of the scribes, that duplication process becomes subject to error. Okay? The original scriptures, the ones the apostles, the ones the writers of the New Testament wrote, those are inspired. They're divinely inspired by God. But just like making a copy of a text in your own hand, you can miss something, right? They didn't have copy machines, okay? The, t the scribe would sit down and write it out. And here's what was interesting. The scribe would be writing something out, and he'd be thinking, you know, I mean, he might be talking about this, and he put a little note in the margin. Well, the next scribe goes, hmm, let's put that in the text. And then and it just, you know, now it's in the text. And they're like, where did this come from, you know? Because somebody jotted that in there, and they got to figure out where that actually came from and did it actually belong there. And if we're concerned about versions that take away from Scripture, and we should be. We should also be concerned about additions to Scripture, okay? Because, you know, the, the King James people are like, you're taking away from the Bible! And we're like, no, you're adding to the Bible! Okay? Both of those are wrong. You don't want to take away, you don't want to add. Now listen, no Greek manuscript contains this statement before the 14th century. Thus, there is no sure evidence of this reading in any Greek manuscripts until the 1500s. Each such reading was apparently composed after Erasmus' Greek New Testament was published in 1516. Now, the story how the longer reading was omitted from the first two editions of Erasmus' text in 1516 and 1519, but came to be concluded in the later editions, is a pretty well-known story, by scholars maybe anyway, but let me tell you a little bit about this. Erasmus' most vocal critics was, was Stunuka, who charged that Erasmus lacked the Trinitarian affirmation of 1 John. He, he charged him, this, this text belongs there, why don't you have that in your writing? 
Well, Erasmus responded that he had not found any Greek manuscripts containing these words. So what? why would I put them in there? I can't find... But he promised if he were shown one Greek manuscript containing the words, he'd insert them. Well, a manuscript containing the missing words was produced, probably written to order, around 1520, by a Franciscan friar who took words from the Latin Vulgate and translated them back into the Greek. So Erasmus became aware of this manuscript between May and 1520 and September of 1521. So he kept his promise, and he inserted the words of the comma into the third edition, which was written in 1522. But he indicated in a lengthy footnote his suspicions that the Greek manuscript containing the disputed words had been written to order. In other words, somebody made this up because they wanted me to have this, all right? The influential German translation of Luther was based on Erasmus' second edition from 1519, and so it didn't contain the comma. But the translators of the King James Version, who worked mainly from Theodore Beza's 10th edition from 1598, which was based on the third and the latter editions of Erasmus, included the comma because they found these in the Greek text, the later Greek text of Erasmus. Now, since the authorized version of the Bible was written in 1611, and most people will hold up the fourth edition and say, this is a 1611. No, you couldn't even read a 1611 version, okay? The English is very difficult to read, okay? And so, when the new King James Version came out, a lot of people were crying, no, we got to have the original. In other words, they're... They don't want the fifth edition, they want the fourth edition. And so, you know, there's just a lot of ignorance about this, you know, because they claim to have the 1611. But that's when it was written. But since the King James was written in 1611, we have got so more, so much more information, so much more has come to light. From the second and third century, we found manuscripts that they didn't have back then. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Septuagint, a lot of these things, you, your writings from Ugarit that came to light, and all of a sudden we're learning all this stuff. They didn't know that. So translations now are better, they're more accurate because we have way more information. Also, historically speaking, and this is a big argument here for the elimination of these verses, in the controversies concerning the person of Christ and the Trinity, deity of Christ and the Trinity were hotly debated in the 3rd and 4th, 5th centuries. This text was never cited by anyone trying to prove the deity of Christ or the Trinity. Now that seems weird, doesn't it? I mean, none of them use this verse as a proof text to prove the Trinity. Now, why wouldn't they use it? They didn't use it because they didn't have it. This, it was first found in the 5th century in a Latin manuscript. So no one ever even heard of this until the 5th century. And it wasn't in any Greek manuscripts until they found it in the 14th. So the original text is accurately represented in the ESV, New American, those other ones. And we'll talk more about this, the removal of the Trinity here, because that's, believe me, that's not what's happening here at all. But most evangelical conservative Bible scholars agree that verse 7b, verse 8a, or a later edition, they were added. All right? John kind of sums it all up in the 7th and 8th verse by this. He says, there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood, these three agree. Now, in Jewish thought, as we have already said, you wanted two or three witnesses. Here's your three witnesses. He brings forth the three witnesses that agree that Yeshua the Christ is the Son of God. So the Spirit testifies to the Messianic ministry of the Lord Yeshua. Testifies that the atonement has been accomplished because it was the God-man who died on Calvary. The, the Gnostics, the Serinthian followers, they're wrong. It wasn't a man who died, it was the God-man who died. Yeshua is the Son of God, and you believe that, you overcome the world. Christian salvation stands on the solid rock of the second person of the Godhead. And it's testified to by the third person in the Lord's words in the apostles, the Spirit is truth, he says. The Spirit's testifying to this, and the Spirit's truth. Now, Yeshua stressed His deity, and I, I really don't understand people who want to doubt the deity of Christ. If you take away his deity, you destroy Christianity. All right, you destroy the atonement. You're just out there in your trouble. Look what Yeshua said in John 5, 23. He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son 
does not honor the Father who has sent him. Now listen, in light of the emphasis in the Tanakh on the exclusive worship due to Yahweh, this verse is extremely powerful. Yahweh is the only one to be worshipped. But Christ says, well, you, you don't honor the Father unless you honor me. All right? The same exclusive worship, the same exclusive obedience, the same exclusive commitment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as you gave to God the Father, you give to the Son. Because they're one. This is one of the strongest verses on the deity of Christ. Can you imagine? Christ is talking to these Jews who knew you worshiped the Lord God and only, that's all you worship. And now He's saying, you've got to honor me the same way you honor Him. We're one. Powerful. That is the equality between the Son, Yeshua, and the Father that our worship is due both of them. And to not worship Yeshua, this is the thing we have to understand. All these cults who deny the deity of Christ, if you don't worship Yeshua, you don't worship the Father. Without Him, you don't have the Father. He's the only way to the Father. So Christology, people, is very important. And John wants us to have it right. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. It is a difficult text, Lord. And I pray you'd help us to be Bereans and search this out, Lord. See if these things are so. It just seems to me like the historical setting, the context, so clearly bears out what you're saying here, Lord. You're giving testimony to the deity of your son. We thank you for that, Father. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. Okay, i got a question. Hi, David. Any thoughts on the view that the water represents the new covenant via baptism and the blood represents the old covenant via circumcision? Uh, no, like I said, there's tons and tons of views on this. Okay, But I think the purpose of this text is to bear witness to who Yeshua was. All right? And, and it, you, people see water, first thing they think is baptism. Okay? I mean, no matter what text it's in. And it represents a lot more than that. He said that Christ had to come from Israel, circumcision, and lead his people into God's kingdom, baptism. The Spirit was given as a witness uh, until Christ returned to terminate the old covenant and consummate the new. Thanks for the excellent, excellent message. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of different views out there. And some of them have some credibility, some of them don't. Okay, But again, I have to have a view, and that was mine. Okay, <laughs> And I tried to base it on, like I said, some... Some sound points there, but I just think it, it's an idea as a testimony here. And he's saying the three bear witness. There's three witnesses here. The anointing, and again, if we go back into this idea of Christ being king, he was anointed, carried out his ministry, he was coronated in death. Okay? So I think he's just bearing witness here to the histor- historicity of Christ and who he was.